Welcome back to Generals and Napoleon. Episode 49, The Battle of Salamanca. We have a special bonus episode we're doing today. We're going to kind of do a deep dive on the Battle of Salamanca with my good friend, Marcus Cribb. Marcus, how are you? Good evening. How are you doing? Thank you uh, so much. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. Me too. I I know this is a bit out of structure for my usual episodes, but I, I thought it'd be an interesting way to go. And if it takes off and everyone loves it, we'll do more battles. If everyone hates it, I'll go back to you know the bread and butter. But I, I <laughs> let's see what people think. Yeah, we've yeah, done exactly. a bit of you know democracy recently to, to touch to touch you know to scratch the surface and see what see what everyone thinks. But we're going to cover the Battle of Salamanca from July twenty second, eighteen twelve. And what I like about this one. Everyone says Waterloo is Wellington's masterpiece, and I disagree. I, I think he did a great job there, but he had a lot of help from Blucher and the Prussians. Uh, the Dutch, uh, the Belgians were there as well. Don't you think Salamanca is more of his masterpiece? Uh, short answer, yes, I do. Um, that's an easy one. Yeah, uh, Waterloo, though, it was Wellington's strategy, uh, mm -hmm. and I know we covered this in our previous. Uh, it was Wellington's strategy. He, of course, uh, needed uh, Blucher. Uh, there, but he was also on the ridge, holding the ridge, kind of pulling Napoleon into a trap. Yeah, and and Waterloo was like a you know a ten to twelve hour slog. This one, what's the famous line? Wellington beat an army of forty thousand in forty minutes. That's that's roughly what they go with. The, the times don't quite go um, because it is a couple of week long campaign and a, a day long fight. But that that key window of forty minutes um, and and throwing forty thousand men against roughly forty thousand men is about. Just just under um, kind of fifty thousand on each side makes yep. it a far more dynamic battle. I think far more interesting battle and shows for me uh, Wellington's actual uh, abilities here rather than a static battle. You're kind of on the reactive. Uh, this is far more talking about what is possible, where there's opportunities, and we will dive into that but this i think there's there's two potentials for wellington's greatest victory really uh not victoria not porto probably um so it's salamanca or assay in india uh, would be his kind of uh, creme de la creme agreed before we get into that uh one quick shout out if you'd like to learn more about marcus or read some of his articles or blog posts or see what other podcasts he's been on i recommend you go to dukeofwellington.org and uh, Marcus, that's your website, right? That you kind of maintain a lot of information on. Yeah, it is. I, I set that up during the, the famous COVID lockdown as a, an output to uh, all the thoughts going on in my head. And um, I need to update it more. We're talking about that. And I will curate a few more articles. Uh, some are purposely out of date, like my article on Porto, because it clashes with my uh, research on the, of my book. But it's a it's a fun one and, and does quite well and it's it's that and uh, Facebook and I bit and I hang out a lot on Twitter because that's where some very lovely historian people do. That's right. Yeah, DukeOfWellington.org if you have a moment. But um, yeah, let's get into this. So we're kind of going to go with a linear structure of the battle, and the part that most people hate the most, and we'll try and speed through it, is the background leading up to it. But yeah, I think it is. It's important to give a context leading up to the battle don't you yes it is so there's there's a few elements to this uh that we're, we're following on from some of the the great sieges uh namely the siege of Badajoz uh in spain so wellington's now captured what we call the, the gateways into spain which allows 
to him to march from Portugal heading towards Madrid. And Salamanca is a, a major town on that route. And he's being shadowed, this town, with uh, Marmol. And they're marching in parallel. And I don't know if you want to say a few words about Marmol. Your opinion of him. Yeah, thanks for teeing that up for me. Uh, so uh, around 1811, 1812, Napoleon's had enough of uh, Marshal Massena. Um, mm. For whatever reason, he just uh, a very talented marshal, but I don't think his heart was in it. So he's replaced by Montmont, who is kind of one of the he's definitely the youngest marshal. He's one of the up and coming like whiz kids of the marshalate. And, you know, Napoleon's basically trained this guy since 1793 to become I mean, he's already a really good artillery general. But I think Napoleon had a lot of faith in him to, you know, come in, re-energize the French army, which he did and give Wellington fits, which he also did initially. So I think Marmont did a good job up to July 22nd, 1812. Um, but yeah, he was kind of uh, Massena's replacement to lead the French army and to push the English back into Portugal. Yes. I mean, uh, Massena's, you know, downfall after Fuentes de Uno and uh, his campaigns. And this, this is what I find so uh, fascinating with uh, the Peninsula War is Wellington comes across some fantastically skilled generals. Yep. And that doesn't necessarily mean, actually, I even think Wellington is more skilled than them. Uh, mm-hmm. But he, he does be, d- defeat a long list of the who's who of the era, really. Yep. There's only a few who he doesn't come directly against. People like uh, MacDonald and uh, the Iron Marshal, Davu, who don't come toe-to-toe with him. But right. many of the others, he does. So... Each side, though, uh, they're about equally sized, don't you think? They're 45,000 roughly in troops. Yeah, obviously, there's always a a wiggle room for um, some of this era uh, because as soon as somebody nails down the exact number, actually, you've got to take off some of the sick and wounded. uh, And that's normally can be about 10% of the army. So both sides are just under 50,000. And kind of unusually, they're very equally matched for Mm -hmm. this as well, uh, both uh, Wellington's and Marmont's armies are very, very even. Uh, you know, we say that Wellington's army's got Portuguese and Spanish, but actually the French army is from the empire. So they're going to have a lot of the satellite states and auxiliaries uh, in there as well. Right. And I know, I know already some Napoleonists, uh, Napoleon, I guess Bonapartists would say, oh, a lot of the frontline troops were in Russia. You know, Marmont was dealing with second line troops, but he had some. Some very talented generals, Clausel, who went on to become a marshal. Uh, Foy, as we say in English, or General Foy, was a very good uh, officer. So he had some good talent, uh, Marmont did, on his side. Yeah, and Foy comes up quite a few times. He certainly becomes a quite skilled uh, operator in this area. You know, there is some uh, quite substantial force and cavalry too. Well, let's talk on the location a little bit. Um, I know it's obviously a Salamanca, central Spain, t- near Portugal. Have you been to this area? I know it's somewhat rolling hills, the landscape, right? Yes, it is. I, I've been around this area. I've not actually got to uh, Salamanca yet um, for my shame, deep shame, uh, but will do soon. Um, it's, it's rolling hills with some big flat um, areas, and that's perfect for this kind of this warfare uh, that comes in. And for topography, um, for the battlefield itself that we were reached, there are two large... Uh, features the greater and the lesser Arapil, uh, which are the, the big hills that will dominate uh, this fighting. 
-hmm. and the the lesser is slightly to the north closer to wellington's lines and the greater to the south slightly closer to marmont's all right so let's dive in uh we, we get a little bit of a context there and the weeks leading up to it i think marmont had done a good job i, I think both armies were just basically trying to outmaneuver each other and outflank each other to get in a favorable position they were and they they shadow each other very closely uh for for several weeks and they they move they march in the day and this is you know july in spain this is difficult going for anyone in their woolen coats and uh and leather shoes right. but neither finds at that moment uh the only notable real event that happens uh for anecdotal purposes is just before the battle uh there's a huge storm and this certainly affects the allied lines where some of the horses break free in a lightning storm and they bolt and a few troopers get wounded but actually it starts to become part of the wellington kind of legend uh, that actually it becomes a good omen uh, soldiers can be quite superstitious maybe not as much as sailors um, but it's, it starts to come in and it leads to uh, a few uh, parts of a pattern that we get where there's a storm and a heavy rain uh, before waterloo as well yeah and i was reading up on it it seems that wellington like you know he took he took a couple forts along the way and i think he was trying to goad marmont into attacking him but marmont didn't go for the bait yeah, there's a series, a ring of forts just outside Salamanca, where it's a very old uh, historic city and near to the Portuguese border. And it's one of the things when you start to dive into, like, especially Portuguese history, is the amount of times that Portugal has been invaded uh, by Spain and even Britain sent some uh, troops out there in the 1700s for the War of the Oranges between the two. So because Salamanca is near the border, it actually does have uh, fortifications for it as well. So Wellington has to go and capture some of those. Yeah, and I know uh, Beresford is there as well. He's leading a Portuguese contingent. Uh, Duke of Wellington has some good soldiers under him at this time as well. He does, and he's got a, uh, a friend of his, uh, Miguel de Alava. Uh, and what I love about uh, Alava is he has—he was previously in the Spanish Navy, so he's only witnessed Trafalgar, but from the Spanish and French side, fighting against the British. And he will go on to become one of uh, Wellington's closest friends who he get, give, gets given a cottage on their estate. Uh, he stays with him for some time. Uh, their families kind of come over due to the liberal revolution after the war. And Wellington actually gives him access to his bank account. So the two become very much brothers in arms. And he's leading the Spanish contingent, which are actually off the main battlefield. So they don't take large part of the fighting. But uh, I always like to mention Oliver when he appears in history books. Absolutely. Okay, well, let's jump into the battle. What what happens uh, in the morning of July 22nd? So the two armies, we said about 50,000 men, they're marching in parallel. And it, nothing unusual. They've been doing it for a few weeks now. At certain times, they've been getting about two kilometers apart. So, you know, well within cannon shots. Right. And they're getting onto the plains around, this is around the south and southeast of uh, Salamanca. Off in the distance, Wellington's got the 7th Division and uh, the 3rd Division, and they are under uh, Ened Pakenham, uh, Edward Pakenham, which oh, yeah. is uh, Wellington's brother-in-law, who's yeah, married, he's married to Kitty Pakenham. He, he, he unfortunately dies later in 1815. But, uh, he dies at New Orleans, leading yeah. the attack. Not his finest moment either, but um, yeah. he, he was also uh, one of Wellington's inner circle, and I think one of his, his true friends in life. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's very sad when I read about New Orleans. Uh, they're, they're marching forwards, uh, they're going round. There's some light uh, fighting to try to capture 
uh, each other off these arapils. So they notice very quickly that these areas are going to dominate the terrain. It's like a ridge, right? It's like a like a ridge almost. Yeah, the 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 lesser is kind of quite a low rolling uh, feature, mm -hmm. uh, quite good. And then the greater is yeah, it's it's longer, it's more ridge like, and it has a a quite a sharp piece of rock that kind of goes along a bit of an L shape to it, mm -hmm. uh, which is um, actually facing north towards the Allied lines, creates quite a defensive uh, position for the French to get into. So they start to kind of skirmish troops out, uh, so the Portuguese uh, get onto the lesser, and the French dominate uh, this greater. But both continue to, to march. Now we're kind of going north, east to southwest, kind of diagonally uh, across this plain. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's about this time uh, that things start to get uh, drawn out. So Ned Pakenham's off. Uh, we've got the 3rd Division off to the far left, the 7th Division to the middle left, and then a lot of the Allied troops. Sorry, this is British Allied. 6th, um, 4th, 1st, and the, um, in, the, in the cluster. And then actually almost to the tail of Wellington's column is the Light Division. Okay. L let's uh, briefly talk about formations because... You know, maybe someone who's not familiar with with army marching, like you don't want to be too thin, but you also don't want to be too compact, where you're an easy target for cannons, right? So you right. want to, you if you're too thin, you leave yourself open to like a like a, a an attack that'll slice your army in half, correct? So yeah, so they're going to be marching kind of regimental uh, columns, both sides. We we talk often about columns for the the French attacking, but it's how the the British and Allied would march as well. Mm -hmm. So it'll tend to be thicker, about four men uh, wide, uh, marching, and then have the senior NCOs, like the sergeants and sergeant majors, and the officers uh, to the side, and the officers tend to be front and back, uh, either on horses or on foot, m m many of them on horses, uh, with the colours either at the centre or right in the middle to be protected, depending on the formation. Okay. So both armies are going to be quite long and thin here, um, and ready to react. So if the British were going to react, they would then turn and start to spread out into two deep, Whereas the French would have to manoeuvre around or turn and start to move into attacking columns. Um, but that was quite standard for both because you don't want to be, for example, British fighting too deep column or too deep line. So they wouldn't want to be marching in too deep because mm. that's going to double their distance for marching. And then you're, it's a bit like a caterpillar effect if something goes wrong from experience with the army. You know, one person trips, stumbles, falls into a river and that starts to slow down, speed up. Um, a bit like a bad rush hour traffic, I suppose. If somebody right. slams their brakes on, the, the effects behind it could be quite great. Right. That's like a, like a like a Peloton in the Tour de France. Like when one biker goes down, they all go down. Yeah. Yes, that's a good analogy. And they would clash into each other like that. Yeah. Um, so it's morning. Um, you know, like you said, uh, the French are kind of getting too thin in areas. Like the leading division gets separated from the, the follow-up, the second division that's, uh, part of Marmont's group. And then Marmont notices, uh, is it a, he, he mistakenly believes that the, the British are going to retreat. Uh, does he just see like a cloud of dust in the, like in the distance? What does he see there? Yeah, he does. He see, he sees the dust and um, this dust is heading to, he thinks heading towards Salamanca mm -hmm. and he thinks it's Wellington pushing his baggage train, his supplies, his camp followers, his uh, logistics back towards Salamanca. And then Wellington would move into the city. Mm 
Because that, that's what you would do if you're about to retreat. You push about, your... Get them out first because they're slow moving, lots of wagons, um, right. you know, yeah, larger elements and, you know, literal camp followers. So you've got things like forges and supplies, but also the wives and sweethearts. Right. It's not Wellington's baggage train. It's the third <laughs> division under Ned Packenham taking a, a wide uh, circle down mm-hmm. uh, off to the west. So they start to go for it. Marmont starts to order his men to kind of go west and start to push towards that. If he was, he was right of his assessment, it would have been a good move. He would have got between Wellington and his baggage. Right. Uh, but it's not going away. It's coming forward. But even Wellington, though, he's I, I don't I, I think he I mean, obviously he has a plan in mind, but he, he sits for lunch. Right. He doesn't think that the French are going to fall for it. No, no, he's not. It's not a planned deception. Um, it's his third division that's been out um, purposely flanking, um, but he's not trying to do it to, to draw up. You know, it's not one of these tactics that they're all dressed up in something and it's a ruse de guerre. Right. Uh, and he does stop. There's, there's two versions of uh, this event, and it becomes one of my favorite anecdotes either way uh, of the entire Peninsula War. He's either stood in an orchard with his headquarters now his Wellington's headquarters worthy of note is very loose it's lots of um there's lots of officers and he, especially junior officers who he works as uh, aide-de-camp uh, outriders rather than napoleon's headquarters for example being set tents and heads of departments right. uh, wellington's more of a micromanager really uh, and it's very different if you looked at just as a side point if you looked at napoleon's headquarters you'd recognize kind of a nato um, format today mm-hmm. wellington micromanaging he's running the battle so he's either stood in this orchard um having lunch or he's on horseback packing uh and he did have packed lunch effectively in his saddlebags you know the on the back of the horses and we we know he ate things like um boiled eggs or uh uh, cheese and and cold meats and bread so he's kind of picnicking um but on his horse observing the army's marching because they're they're both marching and there's very little gonna happen probably and as he starts to uh, see um, the the French move, now they've kind of been given the order to kind of let leash by Marmont. Um, let me just check my pronunciation. Thrombriers and Macoon. Yep. yep. Is, that cl- is that close enough? They are the first two divisional generals. That's right. The first two divisional generals. They start to push off towards the third division who they think are going away, but they're coming in. Wellington sees this and you know, lightning bolt of energy. This is why I like Wellington. He's not this laconic kind of defensive general. He sees this. He throws his uh, lunch over his shoulder. The story goes, it's a chicken leg, cold meat. And he says, by God, that will do. Now, he either jumps onto his um, his horse or he's already on it. And he races off uh, towards the third division, low flat plain right. on, on his, on his uh, horse. And he, he's a very good horse rider. Uh, he's mm-hmm. quite good at languages, but he's a very good horse rider. Mm-hmm. He gets over to the third division. He doesn't actually speak to Ned Packenham uh, directly, as far as I'm aware, but he meets the brigade commanders, starts going, get your men going. You are going on the attack. Get those right. spurs in. Get your boots on. Right. Move, move, move. Apparently, he gives this order, and he starts racing back towards his centre to get them going forwards, and he actually passes his aide-de-comp, who are trying to catch him up as he's already given the orders and turned around. That's how... <laughs> That's how well he's riding. Right. And he goes into the centre and starts to push forward um, the, the middle of his line, the 5th, the 4th, uh, and then the 7th Division into an attack. And this 3rd Division come wheeling round. Right. 
And I, I can only imagine Marmont's horror once he realizes what's about to happen because his army's going to get severed basically in two. Yeah, and it's like almost near the head of the column. Yeah. Uh, so he's he's lost about what was it, a third of his strength. It's kind of his gun about to be severed down the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're strung out. That's very You don't want to recall them because then that starts to cause panic. Right. So they've got to kind of stand there and take it. Yeah. And Marmont, you know, credit to him, you know, he realizes what's happening. He hops on his horse and he's about to, you know, issue counter orders to fix this problem. But what happens? Marmont, yeah, he, he's realizing uh, third division is coming in and he's stood on the on the ridge. And a British um, bit of shrapnel, more than likely, uh, we've talked about before, it's got um, musket balls within. Uh, so it's a very effective area weapon as the French have just got... Um, kind of the can the case itself and that hits him into into his ribs mm-hmm. so he's out so it goes over to his second command uh, general bonnet who's also wounded uh, i believe in the leg actually very yeah. soon afterwards yeah. so you've lost the commander that's very unfortunate you lose the second in command as well well actually you've kind of then got a leadless situation for a moment yeah, I think it's like 30 minutes there was no commander um until clausel takes over but mm. And, and he does credit to him. Uh, Clausel becomes a marshal later in life. He's a very smart general. Um, but, I mean, the moment is lost. I mean, Clausel does issue a counterattack, which I, I don't want people to think the British didn't take a lot of casualties. They did. Mm. Um, and, and the counterattack almost worked, but it was just, I think it was just too little too late. Yeah, and Clausel, you know, real credit to him. He's a divisional commander and he has to now step up to be the army commander. Uh, and they get that counterattack as the... Uh, the British and the Portuguese are coming on in the centre. Uh, the French, who are kind of their centre-right, start to push in uh, and counterattack them. And there's some really fierce infantry fighting. The next stage that happens, though, is the 3rd Division are coming on, is uh, General Cotton, who's the commander of the Allied Cavalry. He's near... They're, they're kind of the cav- Allied Cavalry are between Wellington Centre and the 3rd Division. So they link in, and he unleashes a, a chap called uh, Jean Le Marchand uh, with his heavy um, cavalry, which are dragoons and dragoon guards. Now, Le- Jean Le Marchand, uh, worthy of note, his sounds very French-sounding name. Uh, he's from the Channel Islands, so he's got a French-sounding name, but he's in the British Army. And he's written, literally, the book on cavalry. Mm-hmm. So he did two things. Uh, he witnessed uh, the... Uh, he w- witnessed the British cavalry operating in what was then the, the Low Countries, the Netherlands, who were awful, basically, at the time. They were chopping off their own horses' ears, and when the swords hit, the swords were breaking, uh, and this was due to the system where uh, the men were trained independently. So he reformed a way to, to write uh, the, 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 the cavalry drills, and they learned the cuts, and he also uh, designed two types of swords, the 1796 Light Cavalry Sabre, uh, which is slightly weighted at one end and will go through all the way to the bone, and the 1796 Heavy Cavalry Sword, which uh, famously, that's the one that Sharp carries uh, in the Bernard Cornwell series. But it's, it's really too heavy for dismounted fighting, and they both are. They are, they are very different weapons, the, the sword being straight and the sabre being curved, very effective uh, weapons and warranted never to fail, so they were warranted never to break. Uh, so it's a real step up. And it's Le Marchand who, who goes in, and they absolutely smash through the, the French first line and the French second line mm-hmm. um, of you know column of march as they're turning to face. So they don't get into square. And there's a small patch of woods behind the French, uh, those two lines. They get into there. 
and uh, they have to then turn around because the woods are bad for cavalry to get amongst. And actually, sadly, uh, Le Marchand is shot out the cap, uh, shot out the saddle, and killed. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, he was a very talented officer for the British. Mm, he hadn't had a, uh, as much kind of com- uh, field command as maybe he, he should have, or um, but cut down uh, too early when you like his reforms had real widespread effect. When we ever we talk about British cavalry, uh, Le Marchand's so kind of stamps all over them. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean the French are just reeling here. I know um, one divisional general. I think it's Ferret. He gets killed as well. Actually, I think two of them do because uh, it's such a surprise that they were overwhelmed like they were. Yeah. So, and that's just adding to this level of confusion. And uh, there's there's further attacks uh, coming in from the uh, the British and Portuguese all over. Yeah. It's about this point where Ferret's coming in and he's being ordered by Clausel to hold them off. And he holds them off in a line uh, on the hillside. And as the Portuguese come in, I mentioned earlier that ridge, the Portuguese can't get up the steep, uh, the steep rocky outcrop of this ridge. And the French are able to pour volley in almost point blank into them, causing quite heavy casualties. Um, so certainly don't think at any point that the, the French aren't trying to give as good as they, they get. But what's happening in is that they've got cavalry hammering in on the French. Uh, and then you've got um, the third division sweeping round as well. Yeah, and I know uh, the lean division uh, general uh, Tommy Ez, he's killed as well. So it's it's not going well for the French. It's pretty bad. No, <laughs> it it really isn't, and that's uh, unusual. I don't think they expect to kind of be on that back foot uh, that early. So those levels going in, going you know, really in the centre and on the left is causing a lot of a lot of pressure onto them. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, now we're basically, there's only one thing that Clausel can do, which is retreat. Um, I think Foix's division was the only one that was not initially affected by that. He was like in reserve, so he had to kind of cover the retreat. Yeah, he's starting to um, to pull back and has to, to cover that. Uh, meanwhile, in the, the Allied centre, uh, there's some, some significant events of almost like hand-to-hand fighting going on uh, with the infantry. Mm-hmm. And uh, to to events of note, uh, the forty fourth regiment and uh, capture their first eagle. Uh, they go forward, and the story goes that uh, Lieutenant Pierce, uh, along with some privates, uh, Finley, Murray, Blackburn, and Divine, and also a officer of the fourth regiment, uh, Maguire, and the uh, Pratt of the thirtieth, uh, surprise a group of French soldiers. And as they do so, uh, I believe it's the 62nd Regiment of the Line, uh, they try to hide it. The French officer tries to hide it under his greatcoat. You know, they, yeah. uh, French often fought in greatcoats. Yeah, let's talk about these eagles because, you know, obviously Napoleon and his armies have smashed and captured many flags and banners from opposing armies. But eagles were very, very difficult to get. Why was that? Well, they were the, the height of uh, the regiment's honor and they they epitomize the spirit the elan the 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 coup of this of this regiment and actually there'd been a reform uh, by this point so it used to be that each regiment had one at the headquarters and by this point um, napoleon such reform that it only the first battalion of each regiment uh, took them as well The, reg- the regimental eagles have actually been given out by um, the 
Napoleon himself, sorry, at uh, in Paris. And so there was a real element here. And we talk often about the, the cult of uh, Napoleon. And his men were big believers in this. You know, you would be really, uh, frankly. Yep. And they believe it's been touched by the emperor's own hands. And certainly some of his men held him in like a demigod status. And Right. I was going to say, like, that's been touched by a god in their mind. Yes. Yeah. And we, we were both very interestingly on a, a podcast with uh, Lafayette uh, podcast recently. And we talked about uh, the legacy of Napoleon and his the way he's remembered in uh, certain ways, positive, negative. But certainly his men would behold that and you know, that's, this isn't 100 unique to the eagles uh, a regiment's honors tied up in their colors the, the flags sure. and they would fight you know and this isn't a unique case men would fight to the absolute death um to uh, to hold this eagle uh, albuhera a uh, lieutenant uh, lost his arm holding on to a color and carried on fighting you know mm-hmm. that, that's the level they they, they put the, the lives of their colors their eagles beyond their own yeah, and, and that just shows, like, when a regiment's lost its eagle, then it must have been really decimated by, you know, it's, usually that's, that's in the center of the regiments. That, that's it, that's it. It's, it's in the center, it's in the middle, it's being especially protected by, uh, it's being carried by uh, officers, but it's being protected by NCOs, and it's got the honor of the entire regiment. So you start, if it starts to get into a bit of a melee, men are going to start uh, moving towards that. They're literally the rallying point of the regiment. Right. So this is where we get the uh, the 30th of the British uh, capturing the 22nd uh, Regiment Eagle and the 44th uh, Regiment capturing the uh, 62nd Regiment Eagle. Uh, so, yeah, the slightly different circumstances. The 62nd tried to hide theirs under a jacket and the uh, the 22nd, there's a short bit of fight uh, where the, the private tries to level his musket towards the, uh, the British uh, Ensign Pratt and he gets shot carrying on. Uh, both these eagles go back to Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, only the eagles really that go back to Britain survive uh, counter-revolutions. There's a, there's a rumoured third eagle, uh, and they write about a third eagle being captured. Uh, it never appears, but what is captured by the 88th Connaught Rangers, nicknamed the Devil's Own, uh, these are often uh, Gaelic-speaking Irishmen, uh, famously t- some of the hardest to control and some of the hardest fighters is mm. they capture Jingling Johnny, which is, uh, you see, if you've seen it, the Ottoman uh, kind of paraded staff with all the bells on it. Yeah, like almost like a banner with bells. and with, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like got layers of bells all yeah. over it. Um, yeah. Semi-crescent uh, design, like hundreds of bells. And it makes this quite rhythmical uh, sound. It has a little handle that turns on it. Right. And um, what the story goes that there's pictures of it with a small eagle on top. Now, was that a full regimental eagle? Was it not? There is a lot of debate about this. Um, but one version, and I, I tend to slightly hedge my bets so that it, this is probably what happened, is it being adopted as the regimental eagle and that it was taken. And the soldiers who would normally, let's, let's face it, were being paid in arrears, e.g., you know, kind of in debt uh, yeah. there. Because yep. th- it looks gold. They're not. They're wooden with gold leaf or gold paint. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're actually, the eagles thought it's going to be solid gold or at least, you know, gold and hollow. So they rip it apart, uh, you know, take a wing here and a beak there and we can buy some gin in good uh, British fighting fashion mm-hmm. and spend it on liquor. It doesn't ever appear. But Wellington does write that there's three eagles captured and only two are kind of sent back to him. So it's right. it's quite probable that a third was taken one more controversy i read about and this was has to do with the escape of the french 
Mm. That and, and I don't know how legitimate this is because if this was a kind of something that Wellington hadn't expected to do this day, but it says the Spanish were supposed to take control of a bridge that the French could, there was only one bridge out of this trap. And for whatever reason, the Spanish had withdrawn from this bridge without informing Wellington. Yes. But, do you know about that? Yeah. So uh, basically at the uh, Alba de Tormes, um, Tormes, sorry, uh, the, the Spanish are meant to guard that route. And um, it, there might have been just a misunderstanding in orders. Um, it might have been a more local thing. It could have been, you know, slight ineptitude, but it doesn't get hold by the Spanish. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a lot of confusion as to why the Spanish didn't hold it, but it does allow um, the French to get away. So the French start to do a very effective rear guard here. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, especially under uh, Foy and uh, Clausel now, uh, Foy kind of comes in and they hold this rear guard. The British Light Division can start to come up. Um, at this point, I find it quite ironic because this is the now the, the regimental honour day of the rifles, uh, which are part of the light division. Actually, they've got so many great battles to choose from. This is probably the one that they're least engaged with. <laughs> they're off on the right flank. Um, yeah. But they start to come in and there's a very effective French rear guard. So that allows what was, you know, Marmont's troops, Clausel's troops uh, to actually get away. Right. Um, that we will speak about it many times with with Wellington, but he's he's often frustrated. That, that moment of victory where he should then wrap in and loads of people come in and they start to throw down their arms and surrender and he can have his real triumphant moment, kind of rightly so, which should arguably shorten the war. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't get, time and time again, he doesn't get it after Salamanca. <laughs> and he doesn't get it at Victoria either. Yeah, he doesn't get it at Victoria. Uh, he doesn't actually really get it after Waterloo. He, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it in most battles. Uh, but Victoria is the other one that really comes to mind that he gets really frustrated that he's not able yeah. to to get there. Well, in fairness, the one time he did get it at the Marrow, that one didn't end well either. So yeah, no, no. Um, so he just doesn't have that. He doesn't have that luck at all. Yeah. Um, and what what does happen is the next day. Um, they they do start to catch up with the uh, the French rearguard uh, just a little bit further off outside Garcia Hernandez. I'm not sure if you uh, you've read about this one. I have, yeah. They broke some yeah. squares. They break some squares. Yeah, that's why I get quite excited about this one. Um, so they catch up <laughs> with uh, Foy's rearguard, right? And uh, the the French cavalry come out, uh, but the that means that actually some of the the French line troops. Uh, are kind of left a bit exposed to the King's German Legion, the KGL. Uh, and these are the typically Hanoverian soldiers fighting for the elector of Hanover, who also is George III, King of England. Correct. So these are brave Germans whose homeland is occupied by uh, the French forces. So they've got a real motivation here to get their own back at the French. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they fight here as heavy cavalry. They go in against the 76th uh, French regiment, who forms squares. So that's, uh, this is rock, paper, scissors of Napoleonic warfare. So the, the French will swing their sides back and then form a four-sided uh, obstacle. And the cavalry shouldn't be able to get into that. They, it's it's going to be a strong rock. The, the sharp scissors should come in, you know, like the kid's game, and they should be blunted and peel off like waves crashing around uh, a rock in the ocean. Right. But they're very vulnerable if you can get in. And this is actually luck. Now, the cavalry are charging directly at the squares. That's mm-hmm. brave. But one of the horses is killed just as it would normally turn away. Now, horses mm-hmm. are quite smart animals. 
and they don't want to charge into a row of bayonets. Mm-hmm. But as the horse is killed, he no longer has that choice, and it smashes through, knocking French soldiers flying. The KGL jump in behind, and that means what's facing the guys who jump in is the backs of the Frenchmen who are forming square. Mm-hmm. They start to cut their way in. Who That means then the, the soldiers who are then at the front are being attacked from behind and can do nothing about it. Right. And that causes the square to break. Yeah. Dramatic moment. Yeah, and that must be very demoralizing for the other squares. Very demoralizing. They're seeing their, their friends, colleagues being cut down kind of by a freak accident with an element of bravery in there, and they're starting to go. That square starts some... They form square as well because there's, there's cavalry around, you would, and that square starts to run towards them, the survivors towards the, the second squares. Right. Now... They need to keep that solid formation and keep their friends out, but they're not going to open and fire on their friends. Mm. As they're letting their friends into the square, they're not going to be joining their ranks and swelling the square up. They're just kind of making it quite a loose formation. Yeah. And the KGL take the opportunity and they jump in and get within that square as well. And that uh, causes that to break as well. What a nightmare. Uh, yeah. That's a bad, bad two day. Uh, basically, uh, just a bad campaign right there. It is, um, and it's it's kind of part of the battle. It's a, it's the real follow. It's the rear guard action, uh, but I always think it's worthy of note because it's quite unusual uh, for squares to be broken. It happens really a handful of times in the entire era, uh, and to break two squares the day after Salamanca is um, you know quite an action. And uh, it's, it's partially luck and partially bravery for the King's German Legion, but it's it's got that unusual element and allows us to explain how Napoleonic warfare really is a rock, paper, scissors of cavalry, infantry, and, uh, and the artillery as well. Okay. Well, let's talk casualties and ca- casualties are always difficult to explain. Uh, mm. first, I mean, this was 200 years ago, so it's hard to get accurate numbers. Right. So on the British side or the allied side, they had, I don't know, 5,000, maybe 5,200 killed, wounded or captured on the French side. 12 to 17,000 killed, wounded, or captured. I think people get, I think people get mistaken that that means 17,000 were killed, but it doesn't mean that. It just means that, uh, I, I, like, basically 12 to 17,000 pe- men, troops, are going to be unavailable for the next campaign. They're just, they're either captured, maybe they're slightly wounded, maybe they're scarred for life. It, it's such a big thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a really broad spectrum. Uh, wounded could be, you know, yeah, a, a musket ball across the, the flesh or it could have been lost a leg. Um, but it's roughly half, roughly 7,000 and 7,000 between killed and wounded and 7,000 prisoners captured by the, uh, the British. Mm-hmm. So those are obviously out <laughs> if they're captured. Yeah. Uh, there will be a few escapes. Uh, there will also be some uh, officers of paroled, and there are prisoner exchanges uh, later on. But many are taken back to Britain. Uh, they end up in like decommissioned ships in places like Portsmouth Harbour, a city I used to live in, and they end up in these prison hulks or actually into places like Porchester Castle that convert into prison camps. And they're sometimes given to manual labour or allowed to do small trading actions. They do scrimshaw, you know, they do little carvings. But they tend to be back, and then officers tend to be exchanged. Uh, right. So 14,000 kind of either immediately out of the action or temporarily out. But still Quite a large number. Out of 45,000, that's a large amount. Yeah, I think it's a significant number, um, really, for the French. That's, that is going to have a huge effect on their operational ability, but also the other men's survivors' morale as well, proportionally. Mm-hmm. Well, there's two more things I want to bring up. Uh, one, uh, General 
Foy, Foy or Foy wrote in his diary a few days after the battle, quote, this battle is the most cleverly fought, the largest in scale, the most important in results of any that the English have won in recent times. It brings up Lord Wellington's reputation almost to the level of that of Marlborough. Up to this day, we knew his prudence, his eye for choosing good positions, and the skill which he used them. But at Talamanca, he has shown himself a great and able master of maneuvering. He kept his dispositions hidden nearly the whole day. He allowed us to develop our movement before he pronounced his own. He played a close game. He utilized the oblique order in the style of Frederick the Great, end quote. I mean, you, you can't get a better compliment from uh, an opposing general. No, and um, I don't like to compare, you know, apples with oranges, uh, but he does get there compared to Marlborough and Frederick the Great. Um, and it's very hard to compare, you know, generals because they fought different wars in different eras. But that's certainly high praise from one's enemy. And I, yep. I think it's nice to actually have respectful uh, comments on both sides. You know, Wellington respected Napoleon. Um, so uh, that's, a, that's a nice way to, to kind of pay tribute to him. Uh, as well as obviously, you know, I always like to pay tribute to the men under the command who have to get on the sharp end of things. Right. And the uh, the second thing I wanted to mention, which I think is just typically Napoleon, I'm sure he, this is the last thing he wanted to hear. But right before now, Salamanca and Moscow are very far apart. So just keep that in mind. But right before the September Battle of Bordino, which was probably the grisliest, most grotesque, violent battle of all the battles other than Leipzig. Uh, Napoleon has handed a note that Marmont has lost at Salamanca. So I can only imagine Napoleon's reaction when he got that note right before uh, the Bordino battle. Was that the one where he did fly into a rage or was that uh, another one? He flew into a rage, but I, I'm sure it didn't please him that to get that note right before he's about to fight a giant battle. No, I can't imagine it put him into into a good mindset at the very least because he's now realized that he is effectively on the other side of Europe and uh, his his back door to France is looking quite wide, and he, you know, it does eventually get marched uh, all the way through the Pyrenees in, and Salamanca starts to solidify. It's often known as the year of victory. Uh, we've we've had Badajoz and Ciudad uh, Rodrigo, and Salamanca is this big set piece battle where the Allies get in amongst the French. You know, there's a lot of these warfare are manoeuvre. We see that for weeks uh, before Salamanca. But when it gets in, it's it's brutal fighting. There's a huge element of hand-to-hand, -hand, both cavalry and infantry, uh, and musket volleys as well. There's a huge mix of that. Uh, and, it you know, it causes uh, high levels of casualties on, on both sides. Uh, the, the French, uh, well, yeah, you'll probably want to say, but they, they lose some divisional commanders, and the British, uh, they lose Le Marchand. Who's their only senior officer uh, killed, but they have some uh, light casualties. Cotton, who I mentioned, the cavalry commander, uh, even uh, Beresford, uh, the uh, marshal of the Portuguese forces, uh, he's he's wounded, and people like uh, Van Alten as well. Right now, it's not the tipping point for the French; they don't get ejected until really after the Battle of Victoria. But what do you think the the legacy of this battle is? I think Salamanca is the one for uh, Wellington's reputation. Uh, mm -hmm. For the long term, uh, this you know it shows him as his, his we call it his master strike. It shows him that he can work as an opportunist and can get in on the offensive when needs be without a planned offensive. Remember, both sides thought this was going to be another day's marching after weeks. This was not going to be the day of a set piece battle. Uh, 
Uh, and so long term, this is fantastic for Wellington's reputation. It's the one to look at if you want to see, you know, why Wellington's not defensive general uh, for argument's sake, but Victoria certainly up there as well. Mm-hmm. But Salamanca starts to prove that this is also for the campaign uh, going to be that they can beat the French again in set piece battles. Uh, they've had quite a few victories, but it's starting to bring together a lot of elements, um, especially within Spain, uh, which is where the war is going to go. Before that, we've been very close to the border and we need to get into Madrid. And that's now the next stage. Right. Yeah, it's just, you know, <laughs> if Wellington was like uh, handing in his CV or his resume, I think this battle will be at the very top. You know? Yeah. Personally, for me, you'd go Salamanca. I say, uh, well, actually quite a few before Waterloo, actually, sorry to say it. Um, yeah. And only a say down because the numbers, though they look like they're about 10 to 20 to 1, um, they're very hard to call. Uh, mm-hmm. And the the Indian army, as the kind of the Maharata army, uh, were actually very good quality, mm-hmm. but it's a planned action for uh, for most of it. Um, there's it's certainly probably actually a harder fight. Uh, Salamanca, I think, for Wellington's reputation is this opportunist moment. Uh, and, you know, fighting Marmont, fighting Clausel, Foy, Ferrere, they have a very good reputation uh, within the European circles as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that's just, just tips it a little bit and there'll be some say lovers out there. Wellington himself, when he was asked later of his greatest victory, he said a say. So, uh, you know, I, I could be wrong too. But uh, yeah. I think Salamanca for me, is the one that I'd hold up as going, oh, hold on a second. This is really something quite different. Right. Uh, and, you know, General Foy's saying it, so who am I to argue? Right, yeah, and I think there's a lot to be learned. Like, if you study that in a military college, I think it's a very interesting battle to, uh, to analyze. Mm, yeah, definitely. And there's, there's not as big a legacy as places like Waterloo, but there are some places named after it. Uh, those two eagles are captured are on uh, display at more local museums, actually. Um, but it, it's certainly no. It's also actually very well known within the um, in Spain. Um, some regimental honours. Now, the irony is the Spanish barely fight into the battle uh, at all. That's why I haven't mentioned them. They they suffer six casualties, six. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One more than five, but I'm not saying, you know, how low I'm saying. Um, so uh, yeah. it's, it's incredibly little uh, manoeuvre, but actually where it's around Spanish town, uh, their army is attached, um, they hold actually as well today. Yeah. No, it's just a fascinating battle, and I appreciate you giving us the insight on it. And, um, yeah, really, really interesting. If my uh, listeners would like to learn more about it, I, I recommend, you know, uh, diving in and, and reading up on it and maybe going to dukeofwellington.org. Yeah, I've got I've got a little bit on it, um, and I always welcome that. Um, I know there's a fantastic video on uh, Epic uh, History TV that's got a really good video. That uh, it's in Sharp Sword if you're onto that book. Uh, there's quite a few good battlefield guides. And I don't like to choose favourite within authors, but there's a good Osprey. Uh, there's uh, a good bit in Roy Muir. So there's quite a lot you can pick up on a Salamanca. I know it's certainly one I'd encourage you to do so. All right. Well. Thank you all as always, my friend. That was an excellent, excellent uh, addition, and I uh, appreciate your time. You're very welcome. And like you were saying before, you know, if uh, your listeners enjoy this, uh, let us know because we might do some more. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. This was great. Thanks so much, Marcus.